Dr. Amalia Gonyas Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Welcome to Humanity, Woman in Unity, our 2020 Christmas edition, which looks at equality for women through the perspectives of the past, present, and future. We start today's show with Professor Julie Wells, who is an Associate Professor Emeritus and Head of the Isikumbuzo Applied History Unit at Rhodes University. She highlights some of the historic women's resistance movements, as well as the peacekeeping roles that women play. You've had a long-standing research interest in black women and resistance in South Africa, which has also expanded to understanding the role of, of gender as a force in South African history. So thinking about our past, what would you say have been some of the most poignant moments for women in South African history? Um, I think one of the really important things that does come out in, in, in my thesis and the subsequent book and other publications is that a very robust period of resistance in 1913 went almost unacknowledged. It was just barely mentioned in a couple of history books, but it was one of the topics of my research. And once I got into it, I came to the conclusion, and I'm still convinced it was a correct conclusion, that what those women did in 1913 actually meant women did not have to carry passes for another 50 years. So to have been part of a movement that brought around 50 years of reprieve from oppressive laws, I think is perhaps the most amazing achievement we could look at. And what did they do in 1913? Well, it was only in the Orange Free State um, province at that time that women were required to carry some kind of pass. And the women there were actually rather well-informed, fairly cosmopolitan, fairly in touch with other trends around the country. And they knew they were the only ones who had to carry the passes. They hated them. Passes were used to, um, for police to use as an excuse for molesting women. It was used for all kinds of constraints that the women very fiercely resented. So basically what they did was that they, they had marches, they had demonstrations, but I think perhaps most telling of all, they would gather up their past documents, spear them onto a coat hanger, and throw the coat hangers at the police and say, take your passes, we don't want them, put us in jail. They did go to jail. They apparently suffered some, some very harsh consequences while in jail. It was in the middle of winter. They weren't given shoes or proper clothing, but um, they persevered. And at the end of the day, the government said, we really dare not push women because this is what's going to happen. And that remained the view of decision makers and government, as I said, for the next 50 years. So, yeah, they were, they were terribly militant, very determined, and they made a case. Thinking about that determination and based on the research that you've done, can you tell us about some of the women who've been involved in the resistance movement and ultimately led to the country's freedom and women's rights? Yes, of course, there were many. If you're having a big movement, um, there are all sorts of 
unsung heroines who, who were taking part. But the three that I would mention who were, who were very active that I met in the course of my research, who really stick with me as absolute perfect examples of that kind of unwavering dedication and commitment to what they believed in the bottom of their hearts was the right thing. One was Josie Palma. There is a, a book has recently been published about her life, which I hope your readers will, will look for. She led a, a women's resistance movement in 1930 in Potsdam. I happened to meet her and interview her. I got all the details about this event, which I knew nothing about, went into the archives, read the newspapers, read the government documents, and could put together a very complete story about those particular events. She remained really a, a bastion of strength. After that, a little bit more recently in time, but still a long time ago, would be the leaders of the 1950s. I'm happy to say that uh, the two perhaps most famous leaders of that period were people that I met, and I met and talked to and interviewed probably on several occasions and got involved in their lives and in a few other little minor ways, uh, would be Helen Joseph and Lillian Ngoy. When I met them, it was in the 1970s. They had been proscribed, limited as leaders, subject to banning orders and house arrest and so on, since 1960. So they were already well into their second decade of being suppressed, you might say. But the spirit that they had about themselves, about the past that they had been so important in leading, and their understanding of current conditions in the mid-70s and what was needed at that time were, were just absolutely inspiring. So I think those would be the people who really had the biggest influence. For me, it, what was important was this attitude that said, you never give up. You know you're standing for the right thing, so you'll just keep finding ways no matter how oppressive conditions can be. Uh, I think it's, it's an incredible fighting spirit. It's so admirable, and I was thinking about the, the spirit, the, the passion, and mm-hmm. how it would be possible to, to almost distill this spirit and, and the belief in being able to disseminate it to other people so that they become as captivated in a positive way and, and galvanized together behind an idea or concept to, to bring about change. Yes, I think it's very important that historians and other interpreters of history do everything they can to try to put forward what that spirit was. My own supervisor in my studies quickly came up with a concept that I think really stuck. She said the energy that women showed when they resisted, she said, was like steam. It is so powerful, it cannot be contained. And I think it was it was a very good analogy. So I think, I think we just have to keep, keep repeating these stories as far as we can, of course, to find the words of the women themselves and, and so on, but, but, but keep saying how much adversity they faced and how bravely they faced it, because I think it will help people to, to get a little more stamina and resilience um, in dealing with current issues. I'm sure I remember reading something which almost went to the effect that 
whoever is in power or whoever dominates will characterize the way that history is written. No, it's absolutely the case. It's really the most powerful dynamic I think we're living with at the moment, given what our students in South Africa broadly call the transformation agenda. It is saying we don't accept that anymore. We have to have other voices. We we are not just here to reiterate and reconstruct and and affirm structures of power, but we're here to change them. But it takes a deliberate effort to go out and find the stories that were not told by people in power. There are, there are lots of other other histories besides one that says, you know, there was this nation and that nation and that nation and, and that each of them has special culture. Given that, I, th- I think it's important for us to, to be aware of exactly the fluidity of identities, people who could alter, shift, and change, or step out of a narrow identity into a wider, maybe more human one. Um, but on the other hand, there is still the, the very important issue of affirming a lot of aspects, particularly of African culture and African history. And a lot of that affirming of the past comes within the context of um, ethnic identities, partly because that's the way the histories have already been written. But anyway, it still it still means a lot to people. They feel that's that's them. It's personal. It goes deep. It's you know. I don't think we want to take it away from people. So if we could have new rituals, I wish we would have rituals that actually acknowledge the togetherness that people showed across what were supposed to be the lines of division. It sort of show examples of the unity that that sort of comes. And in fact, when I think of the question, I can almost visualize some kind of a special statue to the women of Africa who were involved in marriages that were constructed to form diplomatic alliances between often warring nations. The daughter of the defeated chief would marry the son of the winner chief, and then there would be peace. So the women who had to transcend all of the differences and all of the violence and all of the fighting and all of the wars, I think deserve a monument because it's sort of a concept that we're, we're not very familiar with, but women have, have been the peacemakers and they've been the people who built the bridges between communities and united people um, when men were fighting. South Africa is a country that's been through its own struggle, its own revolution. When you look back um, during that struggle, okay, well, first of all, one of the things that I saw from my research was that when women were more militant than men, the men would tell them to slow down and wait for the men to catch up. But the logic throughout our liberation struggle, most of the liberation struggles of the 60s, 70s, 80s in the world was always, oh, of course, everybody who's fighting for liberation understands freedom and equality and all of that, and that gender equality is just part and parcel of it. We don't need to talk about it as a special issue. It's just freedom for everybody is what was, was the standard line during, during those struggles. But now that we're more than 25 years after the end of that struggle and we are facing gender-based violence and problems, um, that just haven't gone away at all, I think 
yeah, by now we're learning, we're seeing, we're living with the consequences of the fact that gender discrimination, like racial discrimination, runs so deeply in society that you're not going to change it by superficial means. I think in South Africa, I would say sadly, we've learned writing equality into all of our laws and even setting up special structures to try to help make it happen was not nearly enough. The problems are in people's cultures and their attitudes and etc. So I would say, um, you know, our, lots of our gender issues go beyond legal frameworks and, and need a lot of hard work. Uh, I would wish that women would have a very clear sense of themselves as activists, having a mandate to bring about fundamental changes, not just be happy that they made it into the boys' club. I would hope they can develop and, and maintain and preach some kind of a feminist perspective. Hi, I'm Zonke Digana, a South African Afro-Soul musician, songwriter and producer. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Having looked at the past in the first section of the show, we turn our attention to some of the legislation that drives the gender equality agenda. High Court Judge Toba Poyadrati from the KwaZulu-Natal Division of the High Court relays some of the legal gains women have made and what gaps still need to be addressed. Thinking about the recent past, in your opinion, what would you say are some of the important equality gains that women have attained? Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Amelia, for that question. Um, If you look at the law reports uh, in particular, um, before we even go to generally, there's so much that um, women have gained. There are so many cases uh, that have allowed women to participate in areas um, where they were not able to participate before. If you look at the case um, of the Constitutional Court in Shilubane, uh, the, the, it dealt with the vendor chieftaincy. Um, the Corn Court there made it possible for women to be appointed as chiefs. Um, if you look at the matter that was had in Cape Town in uh, uh, 2018, and it also ended up uh, in the Constitutional Court, um, it recognized the spouses. Um, in the Muslim marriages, um, the women in particular as surviving spouses in terms of the Wolves Act. Um, so there are quite a few, even in the treatment action campaign um, um, uh, matter, the women's rights uh, um, to access ARV's medication was recognized. Um, and now in 2020, um, in the Supreme Court, in, in the Constitutional Court again, um, pr- before the if if you were gang raped, so to say, um, so if the one of the perpetrators was not in court and only one was in court, it would not be classified as a gang rape because the other ones were not there. But now the the, the constitutional court has confirmed that in our modern society, um, which is founded upon the Bill of Rights, some of the things really need to be discarded, and it especially because it founded that some of the doctrine of the common peoples were embedded in the patriarchy system where women were treated as mere chattels um, and which ignored the fact that rape could be committed by more than one man as long as others 
had an intention of exerting power and dominance over such a woman. So by their presence there and watching, they can be convicted of rape. So there are quite uh, various games um, that have been made by women. As I said, again, our country, uh, because of, of, of the policies that we have, um, seems to promote that they should be 50-50 um, in all spheres of government. So there, there is quite a lot that, that we, I must say we have gained. In, in the judiciary itself, we've got our first female president of the Supreme Court of Appeal, uh, Judge uh, Mandy Somaya. Um, I think she was, she was appointed in 2017, I think, or 2018, I'm not sure. Uh, that She was the first um, black uh, or even just first female president of the Supreme Court of Appeal. So that's quite a gain, again, for, 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 for women. So, and we know that in Parliament we've, we've had our first Speaker of the National Assembly as a woman. So that there are quite uh, various gains that we have got as women in this country. All those points you mentioned are incredibly important, and I think that it creates this visibility of demonstrating what women can achieve and their, their capabilities. So that provides examples to not just other women as opportunities, but also to men to show that we are, are perfectly capable and, and competent of holding these posts. And the legislation that you've met, that you've you've spoken about from um, the treatment action campaign with ARVs to trying to alleviate aspects of, of gender-based violence that it's all about developing on women's rights thinking towards the future what do you think we need to build a more egalitarian society where we are seeing greater e- efforts of equality and limits aren't imposed on women I think we need more activism, especially by women, and we need to educate even the men that are amongst us. Um, And we need to ensure that people at the leadership are conscious um, of the fact that women are as important. I have no doubt, and I, I suppose because I am a woman, that there shouldn't be any question mark in terms of the capabilities, um, in terms of the competencies that are asked. But I think because of our past, uh, um, especially in Africa, patriarchy is sort of embedded in everybody's mind. And that's why maybe we still don't have a woman president of our country. So I think by education, by mobilizing advocacy, um, we should never stop. We should never stop to talk. We should never stop to make sure that our talent is is seen. We should never stop um, to excel in what we do. And maybe someday somebody will realize that, you know, there should be no limits. Um, but the, the quotas also work, you know, for me. Because once you say, um, if there are two positions, you say one should be a woman, people will see that, wow, there are women that are capable. There are women that are competent. In fact, there are more than men. And in my view, in most instances, women excel in most of the management positions because of the nature of the person in a woman who is able to deal with a whole lot of issues, confront and deal with the issues there and then, unlike in some instances, some male counterparts, 
they are not able to confront issues, they want to play nice and all of those things. So we need to lobby, we need to do advocacy, and we need to make sure that we excel all the time. Hi, I'm Zonke Digana, a South African Afro-Soul musician, songwriter and producer. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Following Judge Toba Poyo Dlati, we now talk to the permanent High Court Judge, Toboho Jaji, from the Northwest Division of the High Court, and she explains the importance of implementing policies to drive change. Thinking about some of the gender equality instruments that are in place, such as the the Commission on the Status of Women, the Beijing Declaration and Platform for Action, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, especially Goal 5, which is about gender equality and women's empowerment, they confirm that women's representation as well as participation in decision-making bodies is a human right. But despite this right, women are still grossly underrepresented in professional careers. How do you think we can use policy like these, which have been in place for 20, 30 years, more effectively to drive change or change policies to promote women in in decision-making roles? Uh, I I do agree with you that it is a, a human right. And uh, we do have policies. In in our country, in South Africa, we do have policies. Uh, The only issue is the implementation of these policies. And that is why it's important that we have bodies like, uh, in our case, the IAWJ, which would promote uh, implementation of such policies. Because, uh, Dr. Naoka, the issue would be, or the challenge that, we would be facing is the, the 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 question of inexperience or qualification, where you have a female and a male competing, and the question arises that there is uh, the challenge of inexperience or insufficient experience and maybe insufficient qualification, and that now becomes a problem when these policies should be implemented. But I'm proud to say that I've seen women being appointed in very senior positions and very qualified and well-experienced, sufficiently experienced to be able to perform the work that they are expected to. It should not be that women should just be appointed because there are no women. Women should be appointed because they are qualified and they can do the work. And what we need to do now... uh, we need to equip women to have the confidence, the motivation, the drive to know that if someone comes and says, but I've been doing this for years and you have not been doing it for as long as I'm doing it, you will not be able to do it. And it should be something that women should say, but I'm going to do it. Like I said to you, I was in high school when I was told law is not for women. And I said to myself, but... I'm going to do it. And that is what we need to do and instill that in women. We must remember that optimism, it's it's not cultivated. We cannot go and buy it from a shop and suddenly a person is hopeful and confident. It's something that must come within so that these institutions, these companies, they can see, the government can see 
that these women are capable and they can be employed and perform just like their male counterparts in, in, in the same field or in the same industries. Judge, Judge, you are, are all about change and progression. I came across a quote attributed to Constance Baker Motley, which states, mm-hmm. something which we think is impossible now is not impossible in another decade. In your opinion, what do you think needs to be done to ensure a better future for women? Yes, uh, Dr. Malka, you remind me of our late president, Nelson Mandela, when he said, it always seems impossible until it's done. And uh, as, as I said earlier on, as women, we need to have that optimism, the hope and confidence that we can achieve and we can do it. It's, it's not easy to force one into doing something that they don't want to do because they will not perform. So it's, it's, it's crucial that we, we build that confidence in women, that hope in women, that optimism in women that you can achieve. And when someone says to you, it cannot be done, it will look impossible. But once you start doing it, you realize that, what was I complaining about? This is easy. I can do it. But it must start from within. You know, I once heard someone saying, you cannot expect a cat to go and fight a lion for its catch of the day. And it's true. We must start small. We start within ourselves. We start building that confidence as women. And then we move on. We build on one step at a time. As long as we have the confidence in us, as long as we are hopeful and optimistic that we can achieve and we can do it, that's the drive that will make us succeed. And I have no doubt that with that, we will be able to achieve as women. Hi, my name is Yvonne Chakachaka and I'm UNICEF and Rollback Malaria Goodwill Ambassador. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, a program that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in the struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy, a program against social ills such as racism, socio-economic class division and gender-based violence. Womanity, Women in Unity, presented by Dr. Amalia Malka every week on this day at this time. To close off today's show, we're joined by the Deputy Minister in the Presidency for Women, Youth and Persons with Disabilities, Shlengiwe Makizi. And she discusses some of the actions government is undertaking to tackle present issues to drive gender equality. August is celebrated as Women's Month in South Africa, and I always feel that it's this period to reflect on the gains as well as looking towards the future of what those possibilities are. This year's theme is Generation Equality, Realising Women's Rights for an Equal Future. So reflecting for a moment on the past, in your opinion, what would you say have been some of the important equality gains that women have attained? Um, it's important to reflect on health and reproductive rights and say we, as, as of today, we can talk to clinics which are specifically uh, established to serve women 
the right to abortion, you know, child care, uh, and so on. But also when you look at the electrification program, we, we always say what has happened, access to electricity as against carrying wood uh, and making fire on the ground. Women have been relieved to a great extent on that burden as even women in rural areas and informal settlements, some of them have access to that. We look at education as well. You know, we have statistics which shows us that if you look at uh, basic education, the number of female pupils uh, has increased. Uh, In universities, I think it's even exceeds that of uh, young men. Uh, so those are some of the gains. I mean, we, we hear of a few women uh, now who are succeeding in playing a, a leadership role in the boards. And of course, the number are fewer. Uh, but I think already we can say there are ways of showing that it's doable. Health, reproduction rights, electricity education are all absolutely critical. And I often think as a woman today that we almost should be in a position where we we take these things for granted. But it is important to know that we have had to fight for these rights, which actually are human rights and should be accessible to us anyway. I know that the journey and and the fight for equality is, is certainly far from over. And this year on Women's Day, President Cyril Ramaphosa announced four important actions. And for our listeners, I'll highlight briefly what those were. Action one is to expand access of women to economic opportunities. Action two, to support women who operate small or micro businesses, including the informal sector. Action three is to speed up the process of giving women access to productive assets such as land. And action four is to ensure that women are safe from gender-based violence in the workplace. Given that you represent the portfolio that includes women in the department, how do you see these actions materialising? You know, of course, we are in in this era of COVID-19. We cannot go out and meet with people, but basically what we are able to do is to hold webinars. Just uh, on Friday, we had one, you know, where we were with the civil society organizations, leaders of um, women business associations, the UN women, and, and quite a number of respected bodies where we were saying, how do we realize uh, these noble objectives, given the fact that We've come a long way since 1994. For instance, the action one you spoke about, it's even protected in the constitution, socioeconomic rights. And we've had quite a number of good legislation which was meant um, to to protect or to to ensure that there's redress in terms of, you know, the, the women accessing economic opportunities but it hasn't worked. So I don't think today we can say we're looking for new policies or the new legislation. The big question that is facing us is 
how do we ensure that programs from today onwards they 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 meet the criteria that is in the constitution and the legislation to ensure women for equitable access to opportunities and and that's a big debate we are having and we are also looking at what is fate why have we fate and we realize that for instance with good policies like triple bee we allowed for too long men a uh, black men to dominate uh, the scene accessing opportunities on the grounds that they've included uh, in their deal business deal women youth and persons with disability and often nobody is able to monitor the actual benefication once uh, the, the 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 project is rolled out so what we are saying is that we have to use the the lever the legislation the policies to deliberately create opportunities that are earmarked for women and go all out looking for them preparing for them so that we we can begin to count the numbers of women uh, who are owners of business who are in the cooperatives and women who are growing SMEs Deputy Minister do you think that I know that we have fantastic legislation, and as you said, this isn't about trying to drive and, and develop a new policy because we we have good policy out there. Do you think this as as possible way of measurement is through improved monitoring and evaluation of of holding people more accountable as one mechanism to see who the beneficiaries are, who the owners are? And secondly, something that, um, that, that is a bit of a challenge for, for more women than, uh, than men is the aspect where not only will a woman want to embrace and open her own business, but she also has to contend with looking after her family, looking after her, her household, almost the, the non-paid labor. So she's got to juggle between these elements. What is your view there? You know, I, I would say African women from historical times, they've developed this capability and they tend to transfer it from generation to generation. I mean, when I, I grew up, I knew that uh, my mother was overall responsible for uh, running the family. In other words, all of us, the six of us in my family, will go to her for our basic needs. I knew that my mother could make clothes for other women, pinafores, scarves, and many other things that she used to make. And then I knew that on a Sunday she'll go to church, and I knew that during the course of the week she will go out to areas actually selling these things but at the same time you know of course she was lucky that uh, my father was very close to those family chores and she had support so you know what we think is needed is to ensure that we hold them by the hand to what is needed 
is government support. The starting point for empowerment is government investing at, at it. And when I say government, I mean all spheres of government, starting with national, the provincial, and the local. Our women burdened as they are with good support. I've mentioned how they can multitask because I want to say with good support, they will flourish because they've learned over years from generation to generation to work hard, to dedicate to a cause, and to be generally reliable in whatever they are doing and not dropping the ball as a man will easily do it. If it's too much, he will choose not to support a child or to help in, in, with the household. But women, so they, they, they have over years really proven to, to be resilient and dedicated to family life, community life as well is them. And, and generally, you know, much stronger uh, in terms of integrity and all those high values uh, of providing leadership at a family level and a community level. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. Happy holidays.